Hello, everyone, and welcome to First Film, the podcast where we discuss famous directors and their feature-length directorial debuts. My name is Baden. I'm Kyle. And we are back with another episode. Thank you all for listening and sticking with us. We're glad to be back. We're back big. We've greatly increased the size of our recording room. We're now in a horse stable, which we have crafted into a recording booth. <laughs> uh, and we are going to be covering Steven Spielberg and his feature-length debut, the movie Duel from 1971. Not the duelists, but duel. Not the duelists. We cover a lot of duel-related things. Apparently, it's <laughs> an attractive option for budding young directors. So make sure to leave a like, subscribe, and follow us at First Film Potty, P-O-D-D-Y, on TikTok, Instagram, and we have a Facebook page now, so make sure to look at us all That's there. right. Across all platforms, we've been getting a lot of really great support, so thank you all for that. Uh, and we're looking forward to jumping into Steven Spielberg. So right off the bat, Baden, his interest in film actually began when he made a home movie with these two Lionel toy trains, and he basically made this fake toy car crash, uh, which is kind of funny considering Duel, and we'll kind of get into the specifics there, but oh, like okay. crash-related stuff. Uh, and at age 13, he made this 40-minute war film called Escape to Nowhere with his school classmates. There's a pretty prominent scene of that in The Fablemans as well, I believe. I heard that um, part of the way he did that was to film people like in the cockpits. He went to like an air strip where there were a bunch of abandoned jet fighters yeah, yeah. and just kind of like sat them in there and then panned around with the sky in the background to make it seem like they were in the planes. Which is super cool. That's honestly. so cool. There's a reason why he's so like notorious and well known as a director. So the most important thing about Escape to Nowhere is that it kickstarted his love for adventuring films and to build off of that every Saturday he would go to the movies and see various directors like Kurosawa he saw Godzilla but by far the most important film he saw on these Saturday night screenings was Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, yes. He quotes it as setting him on his filmmaking journey. If you look at Lawrence of Arabia, you can basically see the Indiana Jones kind of influence from it. Tintin especially, I think, has a lot of influence from Lawrence of Arabia. That's, yeah, all the desert stuff especially. Cool fact about this film, he screened Lawrence of Arabia with the director David Lean, and David Lean gave, like, a live director's commentary while they were watching it to Steven Spielberg. Mind-blowing. And he said it was, like, one of the best <laughs> moments of his yeah. life. And and shortly after, he made his first independent film, a 140 science fiction film known as Firelight. Now, Baden, you might be saying, or commentators might be saying, this episode's titled Duel, not Firelight. Well, that's because Firelight is lost to time. We would have loved to have covered it for this episode. I mean, it is technically his first like feature-length thing, but there's no way to get our hands on it. So basically, the production company bought the master reels off him, went bankrupt shortly after, and everything was just lost. And I'm sure Steven Spielberg does not like how that went down. What if it's awful, though? I don't know if it got awards. Or like, what if he's actually <laughs> very grateful about that? So he made that film in high school, and after high school, he would move to L.A. with his dad. Where all great filmmakers come from. George Lucas, James Cameron, just to name a few. Every time it happens, we should have, like, a sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> So enrolling in California State Uni Baden, he became a brother of the Theta Chi fraternity. Oh, he was a frat bro. Can you imagine Steven Spielberg as a frat bro? Certainly wasn't there for long. He just seems the most out of place person to be a frat bro. So it's pretty funny. He'd be great though, because everyone, I mean, this happened in the Fablemans, but like everyone started to really like him because he'd like film events and stuff like that. Right. And he'd make everyone look really good. So I don't know, maybe he'd be a very popular guy. So in his time in LA, he would actually take a tour bus to Universal Studios and he had a once in a 
once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet with a studio executive, but this studio executive, after hearing Spielberg was much more interested in films, sent him next door to legendary director John Ford. Yeah. And this led to him getting, like, a three-day pass to the premises. And the wild thing is he decided to go to a fourth day using all three days, and the security guard basically just recognized him and just waved him in because he thought he was, like, some oh, employee. Oh, okay. This continued for two months, and he was basically, like, this unofficial apprentice for Universal Studios, just working at the time here. And a fun fact of this, so I guess they thought he was, like, employed there at this time? Yeah, I mean, you would, right? And someone asked him to give a tour to a special guest who just sold the film rights to one of the studios, right? And this guest was Michael Crichton, who was later in Jurassic Park. Wait, who was he in Jurassic Park? So he actually wasn't in the film, but he's the guy who wrote the original Jurassic Park's books. Oh, so he basically sold a different book's license to Universal and was on a tour there. Exactly. Uh, okay. Um, in 1968, he got the opportunity to direct Amblin, a 26-minute short film, and the studio vice president was actually so impressed by this film, he offered Spielberg a seven-year directing contract. How nuts is that? Imagine committing to a contract for seven years at that age as well. He was the youngest person to ever do so. Kind of crazy for him to sign that as well. Like, obviously it was a dream come true, yeah. but like seven years locked down. And he was still in university at the time, and basically he quit. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you, right? <laughs> yeah. And he began directing TV for the studio, and the first thing was a segment for an episode called Night Gallery, and the process went really badly. Really? The actors were horrified at being directed by, like, a young up-and-coming director who hadn't oh, had any experience, yeah. and many of his contributions were not well-received by the studio, and this led him taking a break from the studio. Really? Yeah. Oh, he, like, took a hiatus. Yeah, so he would go on to try to make a bunch of low-budget, like, self-produced, self-directed films, but the financing, the budgeting all failed for this. So instead, he began writing screenplays with other writers and directing TV episodes. Okay. He was pretty unsatisfied with the episodes he directed. Universal had the opposite opinion of Spielberg, as they were pretty happy with the episodes, and they contracted him to do four TV movies. Wow. First was Duel, and this was met with very positive reviews, mm -hmm. and then he did something called Something Evil and Savage, which weren't quite well as received. And his fourth film was one entitled known as The Sugarland Express, mm -hmm. about a married couple on the run based on a true story. And that one was well received. Oh, yeah. But famously, this would be the first time he would work with a long-term friend, John Williams. Oh, the score, yes. Yeah, so he was very impressed with his previous soundtracking works. But despite that, Baden, <laughs> the film failed commercially, like right. awfully. So shortly after, two producers took a chance with Spielberg after watching The Sugarland Express. Mm -hmm. Despite the low box office, they were very impressed by his directing skills. Yeah, critically it was good. And they made him director for Jaws. And this famous Great White Shark movie inspired the first film from our very first podcast. That's right. Piranha 2, James Cameron. Wouldn't have existed without Jaws. Yeah, and it set the domestic box office record, winning three Academy Awards, and more importantly, making him a household name. A cool thing about this is Hitchcock commented on this film. Oh my god, he left a little YouTube comment. <laughs> yeah, he went in, he, he subscribed, in. he liked. And he then... hunched over his Apple Macintosh. <laughs> <laughs> he praised Spielberg for, quote, being the first who doesn't see the proscenium arch. Sounds Greek. Is it Greek? Yeah, so you know when you go into theaters, like old school theaters, you see those big archways yeah. on the ceiling? That's literally what the arches are. Basically saying he was thinking outside the box. <laughs> right, like thinking, yeah. oh, okay. Then he would make Close Encounters of the 
the third kind after turning down the offer to make Jaws 2. Good for him. <laughs> yeah, and Close Encounters would win him his Best Director Award and would take a different dip after this film into the comedy genre with 1941 about Californians preparing for Japanese invasion after Pearl Harbor. How was it received? Because I cannot imagine that went well. I have a quote from one of the critics, actually. Okay, here we go. It says this, The most conspicuous waste since the last major oil spill, which it somewhat resembles. Yo! <laughs> he fucking killed him! Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I don't think it did well in the box office. But going back to his adventuring roots after this, he collaborated with George Lucas. Yeah. They together would make Raiders of the Lost Ark the first in the Indiana Jones franchise. Yeah. This would become a worldwide phenomenon, as you probably know, winning him five Academy Awards. And after this, he directed a Twilight movie segment known as Kick the Can. Interestingly enough, he was investigated by the National Transport Safety Board, as a previous segment had actor Vic Morrow and two child actors killed in a helicopter crash. Holy f- Fuck. Now, he wasn't directing, but because he was involved in the project, and I think he was also producing as well. Yeah, God, he'd be the first person to get pinned with the blame for that. Yeah, so he was cleared of any wrongdoing, but still, scary thing to happen, even if it wasn't your segment. Yeah, shit. And speaking of George Lucas, he wanted Spielberg to direct the third entry of the original Star Wars trilogy, The Return of the Jedi. Wow, that would have been fascinating. And he actually wanted to do so. He said yes to George oh, he was Lucas. In. But basically what happened is Lucas was unsuccessful in getting him the job because he had a dispute with the director's guild at the time. Oh, that sucks. But although he didn't get to direct this science fiction film, he directed another with E.T. the Extraterrestrial. He did pretty well for himself. Yeah. <laughs> I think he more than recovered. So E.T. obviously about an alien attempting to return home. And in the 1982 Cannes Festival, which it screened in, it got an amazing reaction with a very familiar name, Kathleen Kennedy, and obviously she's producer of the many Star Wars properties. Yeah, and like she's produced other stuff too. She's produced some good stuff for sure. Saying this, at the end of the film she couldn't hear what was happening because people were stomping and yelling. The applause and everything. Because they were just that excited about what was happening. Wow. Uh, and they also had another kind of interesting screening for President Reagan. I'm just imagining him in the uh, in the Oval Office. <laughs> just like a big E.T. screening. Apparently he like teared up at the end of the film as well, which if you can make him emotional, it's no wonder why the movie grossed 700 million worldwide. Oh, wow. Uh, and after this, he made the prequel to Raiders of the Lost Ark with Temple of Doom. And after Raiders of the Lost Ark, he did Gremlins. And these films are so old and Spielberg is so legendary that Gremlins and Temple of Doom created the PG-13 rating. Because in Temple of Doom, there were scenes of kids in coal mines working and the, like, MPAA said, yeah, kids cannot see this so they created a specific rating for these two films god damn censorship gone wild so after this he would form amblin entertainment named after his short film yep. with frank marshall and kathleen kennedy and he became producer on 19 different films most famously being the goonies based off of spielberg's real life childhood friends who framed roger rabbit based off of steven spielberg's other childhood friend and his wife <laughs> <laughs> no is it no okay holy <laughs> um, and, of course, Back to the Future. But in 1992, he began to scale back his producing efforts, mm. and he said it was the least fulfilling thing he had done in the entire filmmaking world. Just, like, producing stuff? Yeah. So, instead of going back to his typical kind of adventure film genre... 
He would direct The Color Purple, about a generation of empowered African-American women during Depression-era America, and of course received a plethora of Academy Award nominations, as most Spielberg films do. As they are going to do, yeah. I didn't know this, but he wanted to direct the comedy Rain Man, but due to contractual obligations, he was forced to direct the third Indiana Jones movie. Many, I think, at this time believed it was going to be okay in the box office because he was forced to kind of do it. Yeah, yeah. But it became his biggest hit since E.T. And you cannot beat those guys. So after he took a step back from producing, he would return to the adventure genre with Jurassic Park. Using a mix of CGI, working with industrial light and magic, this became the highest grossing film at the time, dominated the theater run it had. Mm -hmm. Then he would make Schindler's List about a businessman who saved 1,100 Jews from the Holocaust based on the book. If I remember correctly, he shot Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year, which was a very intense process for him. And so taking a break from directing after this kind of Jurassic Park and Schindler's List because they were filmed in the same kind of year. Yeah, he was exhausted. He set up his new film studio. Now, I didn't know he had any involvement in this. DreamWorks. Really? He basically wanted distribution improvements. Mm. So, he was looking for investors, Baden, and he landed on Microsoft's Bill Gates to fund DreamWorks. Ah, yeah. Because Steve Jobs was yeah. involved with Pixar. Pixar, and yes. Yeah. And I think Bill Gates was going in there to kind of compete with him. Yeah. And after this, this is one of Spielberg's just golden ages of incredible films. As if he hasn't already had uh, Yeah, I mean, like, how many golden ages does the guy get? I'm gonna speed by some of these for time's sake, but, like, here's the list. 1998, he made Saving Private Ryan, a World War II epic. After that, he made AI Artificial Intelligence. After Kubrick asked him to direct the movie in 1979, he collaborated with Tom Cruise to make Minority Report. He then made Catch Me If You Can about a young Karna artist with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, great film. Originally thought to be based on a true story, but was later to be revealed a lie. So the con man was faking everything. Oh, oh my God, the con man conned the yeah. con story. Yeah. After that, he worked with Tom Hanks. He made The Terminal about a guy who's just stuck in an airport terminal. Then he scaled down his directing career. Again. again. <laughs> Wanting to become more selective <laughs> of the projects he would take. Yeah, that's fair. So he sold DreamWorks to Viacom, and he was originally plan to make Interstellar. Oh. Yeah, but then abandoned the project, Chris Nolan swooped in. Thank God, because if that didn't happen, we wouldn't be getting Oppenheimer. <laughs> oh, God. And in 2008, he returned to Indiana Jones with, I think, the best entry in the franchise, The Crystal <laughs> Skull. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. But even despite it sucking, it made $790 million. <laughs> in 2009, though, he made one of my favorite films of his, a movie based on the French comic Tintin. Tintin amazing. Just a great film from start to finish, and it was the first non-Pixar film to win Best Animated Feature at the Golden Globes. But to go on to some of more of his recent works, he made a movie called The BFG, which oh, no one yeah. knows what the acronym stands for to this day. What, what? We don't know? People don't know? No. It's, yeah. It's Big Fucking Giant. Big Fucking Giant. <laughs> um, and in 2018, he probably created his worst film ever, and this is saying a lot because Crystal Skull is pretty bad. Crystal Skull is really bad. Ready Player One. You really think that's his worst? I hate that movie. Interesting. Uh, But a bit off topic, I saw in an interview he stated some of his favorite things to do. He states that he loves to watch golf in the background while he played what he calls his computer game Assassin's Creed. No way. (laughs) No way does he play Assassin's Creed. Can you just imagine Spielberg playing Assassin's Creed golf in the background like as he's just brutally murdering people in the streets of like Italy? You know, the fact that he didn't somehow squeeze that into the 
Fableman's massive <laughs> oversight. Fuck, there should have been an end credit scene in the Fableman's dude of him playing Assassin's Creed <laughs> golf in the background. His feet are up. He's loaded with cash. He's sitting on a throne of money. His dad comes <laughs> in and he's like, oh, what model of computer that is? And he's Ed Spielberg like, size. He's like, ah, not one you made, Get dad. out of here, dad. <laughs> I, IBM died in the 70s. He should make an Assassin's Creed movie. It would be better than the Michael Fassbender exactly. one. Exactly. Sure. So a year after this, he created an adaptation of West Side Story. And finally, his most recent film in 2022 would be The Fablemans, a dramatic retelling. And he does say it is a dramatic retelling. So there is stuff yeah, that I think is Yeah, there's definitely some fictional stuff in there. He's basically filmmaking Jesus in there. Yeah. It's really funny. Like, he uses filmmaking to, like, win a fight. It's crazy. <laughs> um, it's about his own adolescence, growing up, creating films, and struggling with family issues. Got him seven Academy Award nominations. And for the first time in a while, I have to say, it feels like Spielberg is back on top. But let's be honest here. Has he ever left that spot? With Spielberg, he's just made so many movies, right? Yeah. And so every time Spielberg has, like, two movies in a row that are not that great, like BFG and Ready Player One. Exactly. It's like, all right, Spielberg's time is up. Yes. And then he's back. Uh, Some upcoming things he announced is a documentary about his long-term friend, great soundtrack composer, John Williams. Mm, Nice. He's developing a film around the character Frank Bullitt, originally played by Steve McQueen. And I don't know if you know this, but he was actually going to direct the Dial of Destiny. Why did he step away? He said he wanted to be a hand-on producer instead of directing it. Now, I have my theories that he basically was so traumatized by the Crystal Skull that he didn't want to touch the franchise again. His, like, reputation was definitely harmed by that. Exactly. So him and Kathleen Kennedy are producing the film. It's directed under James James Mangold, who I I think is a great director. Yeah, but Amblin, his producing company, has a deal in place to produce two films a year for Netflix with rumors Spielberg is directing some Mm. said projects. That must have been a tough contract to lock in. I imagine. So that basically concludes the story of Spielberg. It's a long story. It's a long story. There's a bunch I didn't cover. God, like, yeah, we have to skip a lot for these, like, high-level overviews. There's so much to pack in there for Spielberg. It's obvious why he's a legend, right? Oh, yeah. But with that being said, Baden, why don't we jump into the car racing thriller, Duel? Duel. So before we begin, why don't you summarize this film for our audience here? Yeah, this one's actually, I think, a pretty neat one to summarize. So it's basically, there's a character, David Mann. He's on this long car ride through the desert where he gets tortured by a truck driver that just, like, will not leave him alone. And it comes to a head where he has to, like, face a force much greater in strength than himself. And it is a wild ride. God Let damn. Let us begin. So what did you think of this one starting Kick-ass movie, Kyle. I've seen it four times. It is incredible from start to finish. Yeah. I, there wasn't a point where I was bored. There were points where I physically was sitting on the edge of my seat and like tensed up because I was like, oh my god, is this guy gonna make it through? So like, let's talk about it because there's so much. So basically, David Mann, he's an electronic salesman and there's this implication in the film that he's kind of run down. He's a little bit pathetic. <laughs> what you gotta picture is you gotta picture the sweatiest, grimiest man you've ever seen in your entire life. <laughs> yes. Whatever you've imagined, age him up by about five years 
put more sweat on him. And then you've got David Mann. Interestingly enough, this film is pretty much silent. Yeah. There is barely any dialogue throughout the film. There are these occasional like little monologues that David Mann has to himself in his head. Mm -hmm. But other than that, there is barely any talking. Spielberg actually at a certain point was considering making the whole thing silent. Oh. I'm glad he didn't. The little dialogue that there is, I think is really good. It's well written. So the lead actor, Dennis Weaver, he's pretty much the only name actor. He carries the film on his back. On his sweaty back, dude. He adds to the tension. He adds to the fear factor. He committed fully. He did a lot of his own stunts in this. Other than that, there really isn't many other actors. The main antagonistic force is like this big oil tanker truck driver. But here is the catch. We do not see him. We do not see his face. We occasionally see shots of his hands or like a silhouette of Mm -hmm. him. But we don't know who he is. And it adds this kind of like supernatural aspect. All of the personality is given basically to the truck. It feels to me like the driver is like a husk being controlled Uh by the truck rather than the other way around. Like the truck is not being driven. It's an entity, exactly. And that leads into the kind of cinematography because speaking of the truck, the entire world, despite being a desert, is very colorful. But then you have the oil tanker. It's gray. It's dirty. It looks so out of place. It's just all these dark colors. Exactly. That first shot, basically David's driving along and he gets up behind this truck and there's this low sweeping shot and the truck and its size compared to his little car. That should be in shot montages in terms of the greatest shots ever because David, he's in a car. It's like a regular sized car. But in this movie, the way that they shoot it, the way that the sound works, David's car feels like a toy. I feel like I could pick it up with my hand. It feels like a Hot Wheels car. yes, Yes, yes. It feels like a Hot Wheels car. It feels like if you hit it with like your hand, it would crumple like aluminum foil. A strong gust of wind would pick that (laughs) car up. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was just so impressed by the shots and like you said, how they shoot the truck because I don't know how they did this so well is in a lot of the shots where you see David in his car Mm -hmm. in the rear view mirror or the side mirrors, you can see the truck perfectly. Yeah. And it takes up a bunch of the frame. And then that means that when you can't see the truck, you're wondering where did it go? One of my favorite shots is actually the opening credits of the film Mm. because it starts off of a black screen and then we can hear a garage door open and the car pulls out and we reveal that the blackness is actually inside the garage. Yeah. And we see on the front of David's car is the camera because the camera they mounted to the front bumper. Yeah, really low down to the ground, right? So it's literally just driving through LA traffic going onto this Arizona road. Just a brilliant way to start it. Yeah, and we see as like the buildings start to disappear as he gets more and more isolated as he goes into the desert. Exactly. And they also use things like when he goes into a tunnel and Mm -hmm. part of the screen goes black, that's when they put like the cast list because they don't want to put the text on like a busy background. It's brilliant. So the acting and the shots sell this so well, but I don't think the suspense would be there if it wasn't for the music either. Totally agree. It's like Jaws, how John Williams did those two notes and it made the film more scary. I think it's the same thing here. I totally agree. The soundtrack for this film is amazing. They got lightning in a bottle here. The sound is simple. Like usually there's not that many instruments playing at the same time, but when there are, they're kind of off-putting. Yeah. There's this great scene that happens. We see David Mann, he skids his car into the center of the road. Yeah. So the car's facing on the side. And then the camera zooms out. Yes. And we see the camera has been shot and put under the oil tanker. Yeah. We can see the wheels of the car and this great little motif plays. It adds to the feeling of like, oh fuck, he's been here. He's been waiting for him. Fear. 
tension, like everything is brought to a higher degree because of the music. It's really, really good. They fucking nailed all of the elements. Oh, yeah. Right? It's been described as Jaws on land or Jaws has been described as like duel in the water because <laughs> they have similarities, right? This hunt and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, you look at duel and you go, it doesn't feel like a prototype. It doesn't feel like they were testing stuff out and then some stuff didn't work and some stuff worked. Everything worked. Yeah. And it's crafted really well because there are multiple ticking clocks. At first, David just needs to make it to this appointment and the truck is like slowing him down. So you're mm-hmm. like, okay, that's the ticking clock. But then there's also this ticking clock of... Um, the radiator tube. Radiator tube. That's exactly it. There's a radiator tube. And at the very start, he stops off at this gas station. They're like, your radiator tube needs replacing. And yep. he's like, whatever, I don't, I'm not going to replace it. That's another ticking clock though because you're waiting. When is it going to break? And it does. That's where Spielberg's like craftsmanship really shines through, you know? Yeah. And then later he goes into this cafe and he thinks he's lost the truck driver and he's just like I need some water I need to wash my face like he looks so miserable yeah he looks so sad (laughs) so miserable but you're like okay maybe we finally got a break from this like horrifying tenseness right yeah and then in this one take shot he goes into the cafe into the bathroom goes back out takes a seat pan over the trucks outside the window and we're like we haven't been left off the hook and we get voiceover from Dennis Weaver as well and Dennis Weaver does really good voiceover yeah, for this does. because he just sa- he sounds so sad yeah. he sounds so pathetic <laughs> he sounds and like, like he's going insane he sounds like he's on the verge of tears he sounds like he's been in the desert with no water for seven days <laughs> honestly this movie made me really appreciate modern technology because <laughs> this movie wouldn't have happened if he had a cell phone but also like I just want to take him and put him in an air-conditioned room he's so sweaty Kyle I cannot get over how sweaty and grimy he is I don't think is. cars had air conditioning yeah he's yeah. got the window open the whole time yeah. so he can catch a breeze I just want to take this man like 20 years into the future put him in like a nice ice cold room yeah give him a coke you know and have a chat with him <laughs> um I actually have some like quotes from Spielberg where he says when he read the first script he thought it was like a bible parable ah what he read it as is he read it as David versus Goliath Interesting. the main character is literally called David too yeah and the escalation of this film is really great it starts out with the truck driver just like you know blocking him in the road yeah and then it dramatically changes when the driver like waves for him to go around him and waves him into like an oncoming car and it nearly crashes and it, it nearly kills him. Because originally you're just like, oh, he's just having fun with him. It's he's a new bored. Sense. Yeah, he's, he's bored. bored, right? But it gets more intense as Yeah, yeah, that, that was a turning point for sure. He escalates it more and he more. He escalates it and he loves it. Like the truck driver is clearly having a really good time messing with David. I thought it was going to be Chekhov's gun with the oil tanker. I was like, it's an oil tanker. It's going to explode. It, it says flammable on it. It never did. It never did. And actually, the studio wanted a big explosion at the end because they felt like it was set up, like you said. But Spielberg refused because he really liked the shot of the truck falling I like it too. I think It's a great shot. And I think it also works because I interpreted it as the truck never had anything in it Yeah, was he ever an oil tanker at all? Exactly. Like, I took it as, oh, there's no actual oil in that tank. He's not actually flammable. It's just like a scare tactic. Exactly. And this guy's a serial killer, right? Like, he's done this to other people. He just loves running people off the road it's like a monster yeah it's really eerie especially at the end we get these shots of the wreckage of the truck at the bottom of the cavern yeah. or like the cliff and we see um blood dripping and yeah. it's just this small reminder that he's like a human behind the wheel exactly and the mystery of who the driver is i feel creates so much tension yeah i thought i was so clever the first time i watched this film because
because I watched it and I was like, oh my god, I get it. It's a western. And then I watched an interview with Spielberg and he was like, yeah, it's like a western. And I was uh, like, god damn it, <laughs> I, I can't believe I tried to like outthink the king himself. See, to me, I originally, I got western vibes for sure, but I almost got alien abduction vibes. Like the aliens hunting its prey. Like, oh, interesting. Yeah. I think the western for me work because of the setting and also some of the shots. And I think it has some similar like themes to the western, like sort of civilization and like where is it going. Yeah. But Spielberg himself said that it has elements of a western So we're it. right, everybody. We're bloody right. And if anyone <laughs> bloody thinks otherwise, we'll bloody, we'll drive you off a cliff. <laughs> it's just a masterful film. It's also kind of a masterclass. I mean, he was young when he did it, but he's using techniques and stuff that I think other people could take away as well. So that being said, Baden, let's jump into the behind the scenes. Absolutely. Light on set. Duel is based on a short story, a short story by the author Richard Matheson, who is a name I recognized most uh, from I Am Legend. He wrote the original I Am Legend that the movie was based on. He originally wrote and released the short story Duel uh, in an edition of Playboy magazine in 1971. You're joking. It was early in the same year that the movie came out. And yeah, it was in Playboy, which (laughs) I don't understand because it was just under 30 pages. I didn't know Playboy had books in it. Is that for reading on the toilet? I guess stick a Playboy magazine while you take a dump. (laughs) Like, Richard Matheson was an established author at the time. I'm just surprised that that was his method of publishing. Um, He wrote I Am Legend as well as several episodes of The Twilight Zone. Wow, comes again. It's all tied together. Honestly, The Twilight Zone has been at the center of this podcast over and over and over again. Because for those of you who don't remember, The Twilight Zone movie, it's come up in three episodes now. It was a 1983 movie produced by Spielberg during his production time containing four segments, one of which was directed by Joe Dante, who did the first Piranha film, and another was directed by George Miller. So this Twilight Zone thing has, like, connections to everything. The original short story was actually based on a true story that Matheson and a friend experienced. They were harassed by a truck, oh. like, dangerously on the highway on the same day as JFK's assassination. No fucking way. Just weird, like, <laughs> what a weird day for that to be happening on. Oh my god. Um, but that was in 1963, uh, I believe, which means that it took him, like, eight years to take it from that experience to an actual story. And so Spielberg at the time was a young director doing mainly TV work and his secretary, Nona Tyson, put him on to the short story. I don't know why she had an edition of Playboy, (laughs) Um, but one of the things that pushed him to work on it the most was the fact that he was bullied so much and he actually sold a truck as sort of like... The bully. Yeah, exactly. Interesting interpretation, right? Like, I did not take away that at all, but if that's how he saw it, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Um, And he pitched it as a completely silent film. He was open and wanted to do it without any dialogue at all, completely silent. But he wasn't really allowed to do that. I assume the studios were like, we're not going to fund you for that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, Spielberg really wanted to work on it. So he went and he pitched to the producer George Eckstein. Okay. Uh, he showed him the working cut for the episode of Columbo that Spielberg had directed. Oh. That was sort of like his portfolio to say like, you can trust me with this. And Eckstein was impressed by the cut. He rang Spielberg and he offered 
him the position as director of Duel. It was just going to be a made-for-TV movie. ABC had this running thing called Movie of the Week, um, where they did a bunch of TV movies. It was just going to be that. So the budget was tight, right? It was a made-for-TV movie, and he would have only 10 days to shoot the whole thing. And I think actually after it wrapped filming, he had only like three weeks to edit it with the he sound had and only everything. 10 days? Yeah, 10 days, right? How did they get the camera in the car, out of the car, outside, wide shot, long shot? How did they do all of that filming in 10 days? I don't know. I oh really don't God. know. At first, he was actually pressured to shoot a lot of it indoors using the Poorman's process, uh, where they rear project the background behind the car and just have sucked. you like on a soundstage. Um, and he was like, I am not doing that because it would look terrible. Yeah. Right? He actually uh, bargained with the producers and they said, if you can stay on schedule for the first three days, we'll let you do the whole thing on set in the desert. Yeah. Yeah. He was able to stick to schedule for the first three days. They let him shoot it in the desert. By the end, he had gone over schedule. So instead of shooting in 10 days, he shot it in 13. Not bad, all things considered. Yeah. Right? He was able to get Dennis Weaver, who he greatly admired for his work in Orson Welles' Touch of Evil in particular. Yes. Dennis was apparently very open to working with the younger director. He says that he does that a lot, but that he's often disappointed. But uh. he was not disappointed. Like after day one, he saw how driven Spielberg was and was like, I'm fine working on this. Oh, well, that's great. And then the truck itself, they actually had like a casting process for it, like picking what truck to use. Huh. And all of the other trucks uh, in the lot were flat nose. You know, like the old school Optimus Prime? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where the, the cab is at the very front, which one would have made it harder to hide the driver's like face. Yes. Um, but also the one that they did use has like a snout and eyes. It almost feels it more looks like, like a, a character. Yes. Exactly. So that's why Spielberg chose it because he was like, this one has a personality while the other ones don't as much. The license plates that are at the front of the truck are supposed to represent like previous victims. Oh my God. That he's collected trophies of. Oh yeah. my God. That's so brilliant. I know. I originally thought it was him like so we could mask his identity if police come. And Interesting. Yeah. yeah. But apparently it's like, oh, those are like things he's collected, which I think is so cool. That's <laughs> it's so fuck. cool. And yeah, at the end, the network wanted him to blow the truck up, but he refused. He said like, you can get someone else to do that because I'm not doing it. Because that shot of the truck going down into the dust and stuff is, is so good. It was a one in a million shot. It's really well done. And it was done practically, right? Yeah, yeah. They had the one truck. That was the last day of shooting because they had the one truck to get that right. The debris makes it look almost like a miniature. You know how they use a miniature yeah, yeah. to accentuate the debris because sometimes miniatures have like bigger breakages and stuff? Yeah, yeah. You can build them to break in certain ways. Like this one broke almost it felt like it was acting how it broke. That's exactly it. Like Spielberg was so happy with that last shot because there's this bit where the plume of smoke and dust from the ground covers the whole truck and you can't see it. And then the trailer lurches out of the smoke and Spielberg was like, that shot was one in a million Yeah, for it to look that good. I'm not going back and just putting in like a dumb explosion. And so, yeah, he made the film and it was received really, really, really well. It was the 18th highest rated TV movie for the network for that year. Um, it was good enough that it got some further releases. Yes. So they actually got it a theatrical run. But in Europe, for a movie to have a theatrical run, it needs to be minimum one hour 30. And it was one hour 15. So that's when Spielberg went back and shot the opening credits with the garage where he drives out into the desert. And then also the bit where he's nearly pushed onto the train tracks. Oh. And the school bus. I remember when I first read that, I was like, oh, but how? Because they destroyed the truck. Yeah. But they got more trucks. And it was actually nominated for two Emmys. It wow. won an Emmy for Best Sound Design. It got legitimate critical reception, right, for a TV movie. I'm very happy it did, because it's a great movie. Exactly, wow. right? It wasn't overlooked at all.
all. Like it got really good attention. It won best sound design at the Emmys and it totally changed his career. Like after that, he was getting offered a lot of films. And so its legacy is kind of, not only did it start off his career, but he references it in later films. Ah. So at the end of Jaws, when the shark like sinks down after it gets blown up, yeah. he uses the same sound effect as when the truck goes off the cliff in Duel. But yeah, so like it obviously didn't have as much of a cultural impact as some of his other films. Although Edgar Wright did say that it partially inspired Baby Driver. I could see that, yeah. In terms of Dennis Weaver, he like never saw a storyboard for it. He said he liked working with Spielberg and that later Spielberg offered him a role in 1941. It's actually, it's a funny interview because they're like, why did you turn it down? And he was like, well, I read the script and I was like, Steven, this isn't funny at all. Oh my God. And and apparently Spielberg was like, don't worry, don't worry. It's not the final draft. And then later he sent him the final draft and Dennis was like, it's still not funny. And turned the role down. Oh man. (laughs) Which is another reason I will not be watching 1941. (laughs) Dennis Weaver really had the most based take. Yo, like, imagine that. (laughs) The balls to go up to Steven Spielberg and be like, this isn't funny. This just is not funny, yeah. There's this weird YouTube clip I found as well where he's like in a car with Spielberg and he's like, ever since we did that movie, Steven, I dream of trucks. I can't pass a truck truck on the highway. Oh, look, there's one now. (laughs) It's like an 11 second clip. I have no idea where it's from. But one of the things he said was that Spielberg just, even at that time, had no fear. He wasn't afraid of going over budget. He wasn't afraid of like taking chances or doing crazy things. Spielberg said that if he were to make this movie again now, he doesn't think he could do it. Even with all of the experience he has, all of like the techniques he's learned, he doesn't think he could replicate this movie again because he said he was so hungry at that age. When he got this chance to make a movie, he was an unstoppable force. That's a lesson, right? There's a reason that he's such an inspirational director for so many people is because he just had a drive and knocked it out of the park. And what an amazing legacy Spielberg has to this day. For sure. Thank you very much everyone for watching this episode. Yeah, thank you everyone so much. Um, We are back. We will be back again in two weeks with a new episode. We are going to be tackling Spike Lee and his first film. I'm going to try and get this title right. (laughs) Oh god, what is it? Joe's Bedstoy Barbershop. That's what it is. Uh, We cut heads. A lot to dive into. So make sure you subscribe on all our platforms, YouTube, all your podcasting platforms, to make sure you never miss an episode. And tell your friends. We've been getting like really great feedback uh, on all the platforms, so we really appreciate that. And one of the best ways to get new listeners is if you guys enjoy this and you know someone who might as well, be sure to let them know, pass it on. And please, if you also can, if you really like this episode or any of our other episodes, leave a five-star review in-app. It's the easiest and best way to do so. And also, we're on every social media platform. We post video reels. We post full videos of different segments edited by Baden on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at First Film Potty, P-O-D-D-Y. We're a red-hot content machine, is what we like to say. We are. And, most importantly, if you guys have any suggestions, thoughts, or general discussion of any of the episodes or films, make sure to email us at firstfilmpotty, P-O-D-D-Y, at gmail.com. Absolutely. We really appreciate the feedback, and we will be back very soon. Thank you all for listening. Goodbye.